there's a lot of work happening where mayors are coming together from across the world to lobby their own governments. Welcome to The Jolt. It's Friday the 8th of December and I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in today's show, we're going to be looking at how cities are featuring in the ongoing COP talks and whether the local level will get more attention in the coming years. First up, though, let's take a look at some of the major climate and energy stories making headlines around the world, including, of course, the latest from COP28. COP29 might finally be getting a host, less than 12 months until it's due to start. Armenia has withdrawn its candidacy and pledged to support Azerbaijan's. The two Caucasus nations announced the development as part of ongoing peace talks meant to quell long-standing tensions. Azerbaijan is another fossil fuel giant, rich in oil and gas. It sources most of its energy from hydrocarbons and has emerged as a top supplier to Europe following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Talks at COP28 have entered the political phase. Yesterday was a rest day, so negotiators and delegates will be hard at work today as the pressure begins to mount. This is the part where ministers and their staff start to get involved and tweak the technical language that's been put on paper. With issues like fossil fuel phase-outs and emissions peaking still on the table, there is a hell of a lot left to play for. 124 countries have now signed up to the tripling renewables and doubling efficiency pledge. Still no China, India, Russia or Turkey yet. Work is ongoing though to include the objectives in the final summit text, so all parties might yet come on board. European Union negotiators have brokered a deal on new rules for building renovations. The Energy Performance of Builders Directive, the EPBD, is a crucial but often overlooked part of the EU's Green Deal. Buildings soak up a huge chunk of energy supply and spew out more than a third of the bloc's emissions. The updated directive, agreed late last night, will obligate governments to come up with energy demand reduction measures and set new minimum performance standards. There are also new rules to help phase out gas boilers, install solar panels and facilitate electric car chargers. There's far too much to unpack here, so tune back in Monday for much more detail on where we now stand. Staying in Brussels and the EU's executive branch, the Commission, is working on a new law that would allow governments to ban Russian gas imports. According to the Financial Times, draft rules would give any EU country the legal right to embargo Russian gas and exempt its energy companies from having to pay any penalties linked to breaching long-term contracts. A provisional agreement on that might be brokered sometime today. The EU has stopped short of a mass ban on Russian gas in order not to destabilise energy markets more than they already have been. Instead, the bloc aims to have completely weaned itself off of Russian imports by 2027. Russia attacked two of Ukraine's power plants yesterday. However, Ukraine was able to largely avoid widespread power outages by tapping its new power links with Poland, Romania and Slovakia. Ukraine's grid is now fully synced with mainland Europe's, meaning emergency support can be provided without too much notice. There are fears that yesterday's attack will not be the last, though, as the colder weather arrives and Russian forces target more power supplies. Venezuelans voted last weekend to annex an oil-rich region of neighbouring Guyana. Now, President Nicolas Maduro has ordered state-run companies to start exploiting an oil and gas reserves in Guyana's offshore territory. The United States has conducted extra military exercises with the Guyanese Air Force this week, 
while Brazil has called for a peaceful resolution. Australia's main power grid is facing a massive test of its resilience due to high temperatures. The mercury is rising towards 40 degrees and is forecasted to stay there into next week. The regulator has already asked energy generators to provide extra supply and wholesale market spot prices have spiked as a result. Australia has only had benign summers for a couple of years, but with this season expected to bring that trend to a halt, the power grid has come under scrutiny. Record amounts of renewables coming online coupled with coal power phase-outs mean regulators are somewhat in uncharted waters. And the Welsh government has revealed that Wales is a recycling champion. New figures show that more than 65% of all municipal waste is recycled, reused or composted. Back in 1999, when Wales was first given powers to set its own policy, that figure was just 4%. Government policies have also reduced the amount of waste sent to landfill from 42% in 2012 to just 1.6%. New rules for 2024 will push those figures up and down respectively. That's it for the news. Now let's get into the story of the moment. Those of you following the ongoing COP28 climate summit in Dubai will have heard Country X pledge to do such and such, or Sector Y promise to decarbonise this and that. All very welcome, of course. There have been some impressive announcements from this year's meeting, which will hopefully translate into actual action. Most humans live in cities. It's where most of our energy is needed, and where loads of our emissions are produced. So you'd be forgiven for wondering why more hasn't been said about their role in the green transition at this year's COP. Have cities fallen off the climate radar? I caught up with Adrian Heal from Energy Cities, a pan-European network that includes local authority representatives from 30 countries, to hear more about where cities figure into all of this high-level summitry. So COP's ongoing in Dubai, last time I checked anyway. There's been plenty of announcements by this country wants to pledge to do this and this sector wants to clean up its act with these policies and stuff, you know, the, the real headline making things. But I guess we've seen it before numerous times, unfortunately, where that local dimension, city level regions and things, that aspect seems to be once again a bit lacking. Do you think that's a fair assessment for, for what's been going on at this summit? The local element is lacking in the headlines, but behind the scenes, there's actually a fair amount going on. There was a, a local climate action summit that was held last week, and that, that had brought in some some heavy hitters from the UN and you know the mayor of Paris and Rio and the four corners of the globe. So there are discussions going on there, but then even more so behind the scenes, there's a lot of work happening where mayors are coming together from across the world to lobby their own governments about the how we're going to accomplish this. So the, the what, the high-level target pronouncements, we're going to cut emissions by however much, that gets the headlines. But the discussions on how we're going to do that, that's where cities really come to the fore because they're the ones who have to implement the changes to hit those targets. And those discussions are going on behind the scenes. And then I just got an email from the city of Paris this morning about another initiative that's being launched called CHAMP, which is a coalition of high ambition, multi-level governance, governance parties. Nice. You can see why they went for the acronym, but it's that, it's that awful term of multi-level governance, which actually means that the cities are on the same page as the member state or the national governments, yeah. and they're actually working together to do this stuff. And you think like COP has been kind of process where everyone's actually looking at it for once, like climate and energy and 
green transition and stuff, you know, that actually helps then because it kind of gives cities, I don't want to call it like a smokescreen or whatever, but all the attention's on, you know, what's Germany going to be doing or what's Japan going to be doing? And suddenly maybe, is it right to say that like cities have a bit more space then to just talk to one another and think we can do this, you can do that, and we don't have to have all this attention on us? Or do you think more more scrutiny and more attention would actually be beneficial? Cities will always appreciate the scrutiny, I think, because they, they like to show off what they're doing. But right now, where we are in, in the climate transition, there's a lot of really nuts and bolts conversations about how do we do this stuff? A lot of expertise that cities can share with each other from different parts of the globe. How did you get your me- your your national government to to pony up the cash for that new metro system or new district heating system? Cities as well, like they can bring in other regions of the world and say, "Look, this city is doing great stuff because they work with their national government. Please work with me in the same way so that we can accomplish this stuff." I don't know that that would necessarily benefit from more scrutiny, but COP does give a space for those kind of discussions to happen. How do you think 2023 has gone sort of more generally? Do you think there's been more of a realization that, you know, we have all of these extremely important, ambitious targets? Do you think there has been this realization that if you don't have cities and regions and towns and villages engaged in this, it's absolutely not going to happen? And and do you think that people are starting to realize that it doesn't matter if you're Trumps and you're Javier Malays and you're Bolsonaro's and you're unfortunately Rishi Sunak's are trying to take a trying to take a chainsaw to energy and climate policies, that might actually not matter if your mayor of Paris and your governor of uh, an Amazonian region are on the same page. Setting the targets is the easy part. Everyone knows that. Achieving them is the much harder thing. And that doesn't happen unless cities and national governments are on the same page. There are exceptions to that. There are rich, progressive cities, your Paris's, your Munichs, who have the funds and the skills and the resources to start doing really bold things. That is not a scalable model because most people don't live in Munich and Paris. They live in smaller cities of 100,000 or half a million people. And unless we make it possible and mandatory for those cities to start doing really ambitious things and give them the skills and the finances to accomplish them, We are not going to achieve the targets that we have set. The realization of this dynamic is starting to appear in conversations in Brussels. We need to switch to implementation mode, and that means cities and regions. Yeah, so like 2024 in general then, so implementation, got the targets, got to achieve stuff now. Do you think there's also going to be more of like a legal dimension to all this? You know, you got, I think it was at the Brandenburg Court in Berlin said, Look, the German government isn't doing enough for emissions, uh, clean air kind of policies as well, you know, with Brussels with its zero emission zone or the low emission zone and stuff. Do you think that there's going to be more of that kind of clash between the legal side of things and how these policies are going to be implemented in the coming years? Yes, is the short answer. I, I do expect more legal stuff, both good and bad, because as we start implementing, that's when people's lives really change. It's really easy to declare a climate emergency. It doesn't change anything. But when you start removing car parking places to put in trees and active transport and, you know, ripping out people's boilers to put in district heating, there will be a lot of tension. And that's why for cities especially, the energy transition is not a technical challenge. We have the technology we need. It is first and foremost a social challenge. And the cities who are leading on climate have timelines and they've built in communicators and community outreach because they know they can't impose 
the breadth of changes that we need. It has to be discussed really intensely at local level with people. This is how we're going to change the world in which you live. And that's a social thing. And that takes time and it takes money. You mentioned Paris earlier, and I, I just it just came to me now that you know twenty twenty four Olympic Games come in. They've been preparing preparing for that for a while. I had a guest on the the podcast a couple of days ago who said about how why Australia shouldn't get COP in twenty twenty six or something because it's it's like Olympic sports washing. You know, it's greenwashing. You shouldn't be given a big climate summit to a country that is demonstrably pretty poor on fossil fuels and climate and everything. When it comes to Paris and the Olympic Games, I wonder, do you think that that is going to be a really big shop window then for how you said that Paris can't be scalable in other places, but a lot of what they are doing is very positive and sends a lot of good signals, you know, pedestrianisation, uh, different heating programmes, you know, renewable energy and things. Do you think that Olymp the Olympics could finally actually have, you know, it could finally fulfil one of its mission statements where it does have a net positive on not only the place where it is, but the rest of the world as well. You know, do, have you seen that kind of dynamic at all with other cities? I think Paris could have a very positive legacy. People will be amazed and astonished, I think, coming from different parts of the world to see that you can have a fully functioning transport system that gets people around. You don't have to have cars in the city. The ability to swim in the Seine, I mean, that, that really is a remarkable change from a decade ago and a century ago, even because a century ago, you wouldn't have swum in it either. This is really long lasting, big picture stuff about how the energy transition results in better cities, right? Better quality of life. So in that sense, it would be great if the world's media attention does pick up on that in the backdrop to the, to the sporting achievements to show off yeah, the quality of life in, in Paris, uh, but also some of the challenges and the necessity for it, right? Paris gets really hot in summer. It's going to be brutal. And hopefully that there's, there's some media out there that look, this is why Paris has a really intense tree planting program because it's the only way to keep the city habitable. Um, and it's a struggle. It's really hard to plant trees in a city. I don't know how much the media will get into the details of that kind of stuff. But yeah, uh, hopefully there's a, a, a real positive legacy from, from Paris about the benefits of the energy transition. Cities are then playing a massive role, even if it's not as overt as the one being played by countries and businesses. You can guarantee that we at Foresight will be doing more and more to highlight the work done at local level to make the energy transition a success. Stay tuned in the new year for some exciting announcements and developments on that front. Many thanks for joining me for today's Jolt. We'll be back next week on Monday for much more of the same. Remember that the show is now hitting the airwaves every weekday. So be sure to join myself and Kira Taylor Mondays through Fridays. For a weekend listen, check out the latest episodes of Talking Transitions and What Matters. And a reminder that the new edition of the magazine is available as well. Thanks once again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make the jolt possible. And shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. <laughs>